Welcome, friends. Welcome, one and all, to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett, and I am broadcasting to you all the way from the sunny climes of western Japan. And today is the 4th of November, 2011. We have another great broadcast lined up for you this evening here on Republic Broadcasting and blasting out of KHFX 1140 AM in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So a welcome to all the listeners out there, wherever you are listening to my voice right now. It's great to have you back for another edition. In fact, the fourth ever edition of Corbett Report Radio. And once again, we have a guest lined up for tonight, and hopefully we'll be making contact with him soon. A guest that you might know from my previous work, if you're a Corbett Report listener, Lieutenant Eric Schein of MarshallLaw911.com and CrossingTheRubicon.org. And he's a graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point and an expert on the history of the U.S. Merchant Marines who has been in an ongoing uh, process, a legal process with the uh, the Coast Guard regarding um, his, his licensing and uh, he's been going through this for a long time and it's an extremely important case. So we've been covering it for, for uh, I, I think, over a year now on CorbettReport.com and I'm happy to introduce him to the radio listeners who haven't heard him yet. But, of course, he's also the host of In the Zone on Saturday nights right here on Republic Broadcasting. So hopefully you've heard him before. Um, we're still trying to get in touch with him, so I'll let you know when that happens, but hopefully we'll be talking to him this evening. And, of course, always, as always, going over the, the latest news and information. So uh, the phone lines, uh, we'll open them up if you want to call in and get in on tonight's conversation, whatever might be on your mind. You, of course, can reach us at 1-800-313-9443. Once again, that's 1-800-313-9443. And we will get you up and on the air for today's broadcast. And, of course, a ton of news, as always, to cover in this wild, wacky world. And, unfortunately, not all of it is good, but, well, some of it is hopeful if we can take the authorities' word for things. And uh, I would, of course, strongly caution against taking anything for uh, anyone at face value for what they say. But the latest from the Tokyo Electric Power Company from right here in Japan that's dealing with the, the stricken nuclear power plant, the Fukushima Daiichi plant in the northeast part of Japan, they're now saying that uh, the, uh, the news story that's been developing the last couple of days, that re- Unit 2, the second reactor at Daiichi, it, uh, although they were saying that there was uh, some substances that they detected that they thought meant that the, the core had re-achieved criticality, even though it's sitting there in a molten heap in the bottom of the container, they, they are now saying that, uh, no, it's not re-critical. It's not um, achieving nuclear, uh, sustained nuclear fission. It was just spontaneous nuclear fission of radioactive curium-242 and 244. It's nothing to really worry about, and that was what was accounting for the the amount of xenon-135 that they were detecting. So nothing to worry about, go back to sleep, in other words, although um, at least one worrying indication that might suggest that this, there's more to the story is the fact that uh, on November 2nd, there was a 100-fold increase in Krypton-85 which, as I understand, is a different element entirely that points to a different type of nuclear fission that might be continuing to go on there. So I think we'll have to wait to see in the next few days what other information comes out on this. But at any rate, the official word from from the TEPCO, which has lied to the Japanese people from the very beginning and on uh, a number of different things that, that we've been able to document so far, they're now saying that there's nothing to worry about. And... Um, and on the bigger scheme of things, you know, this is only one of the many things that we have to keep our eyes on as things continue to get more and more insane. 
with, uh, with headlines like these, disgruntled Israeli intelligence chiefs tried to stop attack on Iran. Uh, the Amiros continue to spread truth through music on 9-11 Blogger. Greek PM ready to yield coalition to vote one. Many other things. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. So thank you once again for joining me on the program tonight. And so far, it looks like we haven't had any luck in get securing Eric Shine as our guest tonight. So, well, I'll just uh, I'll press ahead with some news in the meantime. And, of course, the phone lines are wide open. Any topic that you'd like to get in on, just call 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443, and we will get you on the program. But as I say, there's a lot of very important information coming out right now. And of course, being here in Japan and call, watching the Fukushima situation quite closely, that's one that's close uh, cl uh, close to my heart and uh, very much on my mind. So uh, the latest on that, as I said uh, in the first segment there, TEPCO retracts criticality call, and this is being reported by NHK. It's the latest uh, that I can find on it. Uh, basically, it says that the operator of the Fukushima nuclear power plant has retracted an earlier assessment that a continuous nuclear reaction or a criticality could have taken place in the damaged number two reactor. And it gets into the Xenon-135 that had been detected that uh, the officials were worried about. And on Wednesday, uh, in the wee hours of the morning here in Japan, they were pumping boric acid into Unit 2 to try to contain uh, whatever criticality might be being achieved there. But now they're saying, no, it's not critical. It's just a spontaneous nuclear fission. And the implication is that there's not much to worry about, although there are still other worrying headlines that are coming out. We have one from informable.com today, uh, another great source of information. Uh, reactor 2 hydrogen levels rising despite work to improve reliability of nitrogen injection. And again, some links to some source documents, informable.com, a great place to go if you're looking for source documents and uh, and information directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, and then over on enews.com, we have one from a couple of days ago now, so it, this predates that uh, retraction of the criticality call on Unit 2. But New York Times is reporting, for, for the first time, TEPCO admits fuel deep inside three stricken plants probably continuing to experience bursts of fission. So they've been talking about Unit 2 in the last couple of days, but this raises the possibility that we have fission going on in Units 1 and 3 as well. So the lie that the uh, the situation is totally under control and, uh, and things are just going to be in a steady state of improvement from here on in seems to be a verifiable uh, lie. And uh, and we get more of that from that New York Times report. And this, again, this is coming from enews.com where they say, Nuclear workers at the crippled Fukushima power plant raced to inject boric acid into the plant's number two reactor early Wednesday after telltale radioactive elements were detected there. And the plant's owner admitted for the first time that fuel deep inside three stricken plants were probably continuing to experience bursts of fission. And according to the Times, a Tepco, Tepco Tokyo Electric Power Company spokesman said, detailed measurements had not yet been taken at two other severely damaged reactors on the Fukushima site but acknowledged the possibility of episodes of fission there, too. 
So, again, a continuing story, and the latest word is that supposedly there's nothing to worry about. But that's belied by stories like this one, and uh, this comes from Wired.com from the 2nd of November. Just a bizarre story. You, you have to read it to believe it. It's under the headline, Japanese government wants to build backup Tokyo. Yes, you heard that correctly. Apparently, Tokyo is now uh, looking into the possibility, the government is looking into the possibility of building up a backup Tokyo, not for not for people, not to evacuate people in the wake of a widespread disaster, but, of course, to, to uh, relocate the government itself and make sure that there's that all-important continuity of operations. So I'll just read the, for the opening of this. It says, The Japanese government has unveiled radical plans to build a standby city for Tokyo's political functions to move to in the event of a disabling earthquake or other natural disaster. The backup city, which has been codenamed IRTBBC, or Integrated Resort Tourism Business and Backup City, will sit 300 miles west of Tokyo on the site of Itami Airport, which is politically unpopular and has been largely superseded by other airports, including Kansai and Kobe. So here's the uh, the Osaka Municipal Airport, which is apparently uh, slated to become the site of a new Backup City. Once again, IRTBBC, Integrated Resort Tourism Business and Backup City. You can't make this stuff up. And um, I think, obviously, in any other time, this sort of story would just raise some eyebrows or cause some people to roll their eyes. But once we're dealing with uh, with all of the Fukushima meltdown crisis, for this information to come out now is particularly telling. And I think it's telling because... What we saw recently, now that uh, the Prime Minister, who was the Prime Minister of Japan when the uh, crisis started, Prime Minister Kanto Khan, he's no longer the Prime Minister because uh, Japan tends to change its Prime Ministers uh, every few months. But uh, but the uh, the former Prime Minister, once he left office, came out with an interview and said, uh, "Yeah, at the time I was I was getting uh, my advisors to tell me about what would be the worst possible situation at Fukushima. What what would what would happen? What would we have to do?" And the advisors were saying, well, in the event of a worst-case scenario, we're going to have to evacuate Tokyo itself, which uh, and it's just mind-boggling to even contemplate 30 million people, I believe, in the, uh, in the greater metropolitan area. And uh, such a, a wide-scale evacuation obviously would be nothing less than, than absolutely game-changing for Japan as a whole. And, uh, and Khan, Prime Minister Khan obviously recognized that, and he said, Apparently, he said, uh, well, basically, the, that option is off the table. We can't do that because he was worried about the, the state of uh, Japan uh, uh, being able to continue as a democracy, as a, as, a, as a nation, which I think goes to the very mindset of the people involved here and the people really in any country. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Japan or America or Canada or Australia or wherever you are. I think the people who infest the bureaucracy tend to have the same mindset, which is preservation of the bureaucracy above all else. We must not ever let anything damage or threaten the state. It doesn't matter how many people would have to die in the event of a tra tragedy like that, as long as we don't have to fundamentally alter the state itself or, or call that into question, because Japan wouldn't be politically viable if it lost a quarter of its population overnight, would it, in the event of some terrible disaster? So, um, so certainly that's just, I think, speaks to the mindset of the people who are in these uh, positions of power in governments and are uh, presuming to rule over us while they build up their their backup cities hundreds of miles west of the uh, the most populous part of the country to move to in the case of uh, some cat catastrophe. So once again, take that for what it is, and I'm sure that there are many, many, many other such uh, plans and contingencies and things that exist, and we know we know some of them. Others are speculative. Others we have some partial confirmation of. 
Um, we know, for example, that on 9-11, uh, continuity of government uh, operations were put into place, and we don't know to what extent uh, that was implemented or, or what that involved precisely, because, of course, such information is classified. Because uh, knowing how the uh, government intends to propagate itself in the wake of a disaster, just we, we, we peons aren't allowed to know that knowledge, are we? And so, uh, so the state of emergency that was enacted on 9-11 by uh, President Bush has been reenacted every single year uh, since the disaster. So since 9-11, every single year, they've, they've reinstituted that state of emergency, which, which ultimately, when you go and look at the, uh, the, well, to the extent that we even can look at the executive orders, really does make the, the president a dictator. Um, and we saw that with uh, PDD-51, if memory serves. I hope people will uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe it was PDD-51, which is a presidential decision directive, which effectively uh, gives the, the president the power to do anything he wants at any time in the event of a wide-scale disaster. And that was really just the uh, the cover uh, cover uh, summary of the the d- decision itself, because once again, the decision is classified, and not only can you and I not know what that decision actually says, but the Congress congressmen, even the heads of the Homeland Security Committee, the people who are in charge of overseeing this function of the government, aren't allowed to see the document itself. Uh, just on its face, outrageous, outrageous. There's just no other word for it. So. Once again, unfortunately, we don't know uh, the extent to which the uh, the governments are planning all these contingencies, but uh, we know that they are there and they are in place, and some of them are even functioning as we speak. So backup cities in faraway parts of the uh, the country are just uh, one aspect of that. But I, I guess if there's any bright spot to be found from this uh, this whole nuclear kerfuffle here in Japan, it's the, uh, the, the fact that it, the usually docile and complacent Japanese population really is expressing their frustration, their anger, and the fact that they're not going to go along with it. So um, NHK also reporting today, 70% in Japan want end to nuclear power, which is uh, perhaps not a fundamental shift in public sentiment. I would imagine even if you'd polled people before Fukushima, they would have probably said something similar. I don't know if it would have been 70%, and I'm not sure if people would have been as forthcoming or straightforward or answered the question as truthfully, but certainly Japanese people, I think, quite obviously, and for quite obvious reasons, have an aversion to, to nuclear power uh, as a whole, to the, the whole nuclear enterprise, obviously being the recipients of the only bomb that was, nuclear bomb that was ever deployed in warfare on a civilian population. So um, so obviously Japanese people have uh, quite a sensitive uh, area when it comes to nuclear power in general, and uh, the entire, I think, the entire nuclear power industry would never have been able to get a foothold in Japan at all if it weren't for the active collusion and cooperation of foreign interests, including, of course, the CIA. Because as it turns out, the, uh, the first daily newspaper in Japan to come out with an editorial about uh, the, uh, the introduction of nuclear power and why it's such a great thing, which I believe took place in the 1960s, perhaps the 1950s, I'm open to correction on that. But the uh, first newspaper, I believe, was the, uh, the Yamiuri Shinbun, and uh, that that editorial was, in fact, ghostwritten by the CIA working at the embassy in uh, Tokyo. So, um, so once again, that's an interesting little uh, tidbit for you to uh, to stuff away. And uh, once again, don't take my word for any of this. Go and look it up for yourself, because uh, that's the best way to come to an understanding of this. But once again, it just shows that the crisis uh, is is un- continuing to unfold and is uh, continuing to anger the Japanese population. And uh, there was a story. From yesterday, I don't know how related it is, but I, I thought it was particularly funny about someone who uh, 
who was so angry about uh, TEPCO uh, bill that uh, apparently he was uh, arrested for threatening TEPCO employees. And that comes from Japan today. Maybe we'll go over that when we get come back from the break. But, of course, once again, if you want to join us, 1-800-313-9443. Any topic is okay. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett, and our guest tonight, Eric Schein, looks like he might be AWOL. Uh, we haven't gotten in touch with him yet, so so hopefully if he comes on, um, we'll definitely get him up and on the air. But until then, it's going to be um, me hosting, uh, hosting the program, and I'm going to be going over some of the news and some of the information that's going on tonight uh, in the wide world of ours. But of course, if you want to get in on the conversation, 1-800-313-9443, happy to have you on the air. But uh, let's let's start going over some of the other information. Again, as I say, there's so much going on in the world today. And uh, if we turn our attention over to Europe, some very big things happening in the economy over there, as I'm sure you're all at least vaguely aware, the uh, the European rescue deal for Greece. Very, very huge thing that's uh, that's happening right now. And of course, the, we've got the G20 summit just uh, wrapping up today, I believe, in, in Cannes in France. And, uh, and some big developments that are happening there with regards to the Greek bailout. Of course, we've seen over the last couple of years the, the Greek people getting more and more agitated and big-scale riots and things going on because the Greek uh, government is asking the people to take on the debt that they racked up in their name. And the people aren't so happy about that. And it looks like the Greek people have a bit of backbone, and they're not just going to sit down and take it lightly. So... Um, some big things scrape, uh, sh- uh, coming up in Greece, and, and certainly Greece... I mean, it's a it's a pretty uh, big nation, and it's a pretty big test, I think, for the European Union as a whole. Of course, uh, personally, uh, my own ideology, I'm very much opposed to the globalization project, at least the way it's been envisioned by the uh, the Eurocrats and other people like that, who just want to use it as a way to extend their financial control and their political control across the across the board. And anyone who's seen the way the European Union has started to construct itself into a bit of a um, uh, an empire. Uh, is it's quite disturbing, really, and the way that they've done that, especially, is is really disturbing because, of course, the average person in the in Europe has no say over it. So there's no good in blaming the Europeans for for having this uh, this Euro bureaucracy being constructed around them. Uh, they're they're fighting back uh, very much, and every time they get a vote on the issue, they turn it down. So back in I think it was 2005 when the EU Constitution was making the rounds. And they wanted to bring in a constitution for Europe with a president and a flag and uh, and all of that kind of uh, trappings of, of some sort of nation state for this global uh, regional authority or whatever it's uh, whatever it really is. When they were bringing that in, they actually did give uh, some of the countries uh, a say in in the uh, constitution because, of course, uh, a country just can't sign on to a regional government without giving the, the people some sort of say. And so, of course, it was rejected soundly by the uh, French and Dutch voters before it even got anywhere else. So they had to stop with the Constitution. And basically, they just wrapped it up. They just renamed it. They just sold it um, as something slightly different. They called it a treaty, and they called it the Lisbon Treaty. And uh, it was basically the EU Constitution in all but name, and it was uh, it, all of the, the key elements of that Constitution were in there. 
And uh, they, they once again tried to get this ratified. And the thing was that a lot of countries could ratify the treaty just in the political level. They didn't need the, uh, the people to get on board with it. They didn't need to put it to the people for a referendum. So, uh, so unfortunately, a lot of people around the world uh, signed on for this uh, EU uh, Lisbon Treaty or were signed on for the Lisbon Treaty around Europe without uh, having any say whatsoever. One of the only countries that actually really got a say in it and got a referendum was Ireland, which had it in its constitution for this type of treaty that was going to amend the Irish constitution. They had to have a referendum on it. So I believe it was in 2008 the first referendum was held, um, and that was uh, the, the Lisbon Treaty referendum in Ireland. It was roundly rejected by Irish voters. They voted no. They didn't want to sign on to this uh, this European bureaucracy that had grown is, is trying to pretend that it's some sort of government. And uh, and I think understandably so, because if you look at the history of Ireland and how they fought for centuries and centuries to free themselves of British control, to imagine themselves just willfully handing that control over to some authority in Brussels or some so-called authority, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So obviously they rejected the Lisbon Treaty. And then uh, amazingly enough, within hours, literally, literally within hours of them rejecting that, it came out uh, through the newswires that, oh, you know, uh, Sarkozy in France and, and Brown in, or Blair, I think at the time, in, in Britain, oh, they're just, uh, they're, they're really worried about this and they think it, it doesn't really reflect the will of the Irish voters, so they're going to have to vote again. And that's right, they had another vote. They made the, the people of Ireland vote again on the Lisbon Treaty. And, uh, and I think they would have kept making them vote again and again and again until they got it right. That is, until they voted for the EU. And uh, luckily enough for them, I guess, uh, back in 2009, I think it was, 2009? Yeah. The, uh, the Irish people did vote for the Lisbon Treaty the second time around. There were all sorts of shenanigans. There were uh, literally laws being broken by the Irish government and by the EU itself. In, in the, the course of that referendum, there was uh, a lot of shady shenanigans with uh, open ballot boxes being uh, taken out of the, uh, the counting places and with no security whatsoever and all sorts of things like that. And uh, suffice it to say, the uh, treaty passed by a small vote, and, um, and there you go. Ireland signed up, and uh, the Lisbon Treaty could press ahead, and the EU monster could continue to grow with its death grip over the European continent as a whole and now trying to expand more and more into places like Turkey and even Iceland. Why anyone would even want to sign on to the euro as it exists today, I can't even imagine, because it's just getting worse and worse and worse for the people in uh, in Greece, in, in Europe as a whole, because of this bank debt contagion that's been racked up in the name of the people of Europe by their so-called leaders. So let's come back after the break, and we'll get more into this uh, European debt uh, fiasco. And uh, after the break, uh, we'll also hopefully take some calls. If there's anyone out there who wants to get in, 1-800-313-9443. As sure as I am the president, President Jimmy Carter. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Can our 
All right, welcome back, my friends, to Corbett Report Radio. No, we're not advertising for the Jimmy Carter campaign, but uh, I thought that was a particularly humorous piece of political propaganda from the 1970s that I think a lot of people would wish had never been created in the first place, but it, I thought it was kind of funny. And that comes from, I believe, a song poem anthology that I, I suggest people check out, some very strange stuff like that. But uh, here we are now in 2011 dealing with uh, Jimmy Carter II, a.k.a. Barack Obama, and uh, and it looks like he is heading for a one-term presidency, and uh, unless, you know, who knows what aces are up the sleeve, and we know that uh, that people in those positions just love to pull out those aces at opportune times to create the scare that makes them politically viable again, just as happened with uh, Bill Clinton, just as he was beginning to tank, and uh, along came the OKC bombing, and look at that, his political fortunes reversed Right quick, his uh, his approval ratings shot up immediately, and he ended up winning his second term handily and uh, becoming a, a revered president by a lot of people. Um, just one of those things that happens when there's a mass tragedy that gets everyone to rally around the flag. So it's always something that we have to be concerned of and have to be on the lookout for. So. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, a cornered animal is the most dangerous, so we have to be uh, concerned whenever any politician gets uh, their back up against the wall, and, uh, and there's only one way for them forward. Anyway, on uh, leaving that uh, that unfortunate topic, before, you know, I, I brought up the case of that TEPCO um, uh, uh, threat that had come. I did never finished up on that story. It came from Japan today. Kind of humorous. I suppose it's not really humorous. It's not even really related to Fukushima, but I just thought it was funny that it involved the Tokyo Electric Power Company. Maybe funny in an ironic way, not a ha-ha way. But it says, uh, man arrested for threatening TEPCO employees after not paying bill. And it's talking about how a man who fell behind on his utility bill and he had his power cut off by TEPCO was arrested after he became angry. He started threatening the company's staff. Um, basically, he told one of the operators, turn my power back on even for just a minute or I'll kill you. Which, I mean, in a lot of ways, no, that isn't funny. And uh, it's never funny to, to, to have some, a situation like that. But it does go to show that uh, that the power companies have an incredible control over our lives. So if you think about it, and most of us don't think about it, as long as the power's on and as long as we can pay the bills, who's going to think about it? But um, But more and more people are finding it harder and harder to make ends meet in our economy. And that uh, that's going to translate into a lot of rage striking out into places that uh, that maybe ha- haven't experienced this type of rage before. How many people really uh, get angry at their, their power company? Well, obviously, people who have their power cut off get angry. So, um, so we're going to see more and more stories like that, not only in Japan, but I think all around the world as the uh, economic crisis continues to unfold. The economic crisis that we're continuing to document at CorbettReport.com and here on Corbett Report Radio. Let me just throw out the uh, the contact for Republic Broadcasting once again in case you want to get in touch with the network. Of course, you can find them on Facebook, facebook.com slash Republic Broadcasting Network, Twitter at uh, RBN Live, and the address is 2251 Double Creek Drive, number 302, Round Rock, Texas, 78664. And, of course, if you want to get in touch to get uh, on the program today, we still have wide-open phone lines, so you can get on air with whatever's on your mind. 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. But let's, uh, let's move along. Let's continue documenting this uh, tailspin of the world economy, because the world economy is very much all interrelated these days, whether we like it or not. And what happens in Europe 
is uh, if it's a disaster, if it's a catastrophe, you better believe it's going to start melting down the rest of the uh, world economy, which is already in something of a tailspin. And uh, for people who uh, don't understand how that works, just think back to September 2008. We had that um, terrible uh, economic meltdown with uh, Lehman Brothers and, and all of that fiasco, and that immediately started a chain reaction that start, started to tank Iceland, and that's how Iceland got in the mess that they're in, because their banks uh, tanked in the wake of that. So as I say, it's all interrelated, so we have to keep our eye on what's happening overseas and in all parts of the globe, because unfortunately it affects us wherever we might live, uh, whether we're talking about Fukushima or the economic collapse. So getting back to the uh, the economy and the, uh, the G20 meeting that's happening in Cannes, France right now, uh, we have this headline, and I think this is some interesting propaganda, so we better uh, tease it out and, and explain it for you, but here it is, Greece scraps public vote on EU bailout plan. And uh, this comes from MSNBC, and they say Greece's Prime Minister on Thursday abandoned his explosive plan to put a European rescue deal to popular vote amid reports he has struck a deal with ministers to step down and hand power to a negotiated coalition government if they help him win a confidence vote on Friday. Government sources with knowledge of a cabinet meeting told Reuters the ministers involved in the deal were led by Finance Minister Evangelos Venizelos. He was told that he must leave calmly in order to save the party. One source told Reuters, on condition of anonymity, he agreed to step down. It was very civilized with no acrimony. So I think this story is interesting um, because one of the interesting parts of this is they call it an explosive plan to put the European rescue deal to popular vote. So I don't know if you were following this, but this was a big kerfuffle recently where Greece... uh, um, they decided, oh, they're actually going to give a, a referendum on this issue, this European uh, bailout thing that uh, that Greece is going to be signed on to and is going to put them in debt for generations to come. And uh, they're actually going to give the Greek people a say in that. And this was considered explosive, an explosive plan. What an explosive idea to give the people a say over whether or not they should be indebted and put into servitude for the rest of their lives and their children's lives for a debt that's been racked up in their name, to give them a vote on whether or not to sign on to that, that's explosive. I mean, who would think of actually letting the people decide something like that? So, so again, just even the language that they use to introduce this type of thing um, is interesting, but there you go. It seems that uh, they are not going to do that after all, because uh, it looks like uh, he's managed to strike a deal to, um, to, get, uh, to get an orderly transition of power to the next uh, group of thugs who are going to move the football further down the political field. And again, that's really ultimately what it's about. These politicians are concerned primarily with saving their own neck. And uh, and that's that's what they're in it for, whether it's in Tokyo, whether it's in Greece, whether it's in America, wherever you are, uh, your government is planning how to best keep itself in power and keep the oligarchy going. And that's ultimately what it boils down to. But it looks like we have a caller on the line, so let's go to your calls uh, once again, if you want to join in on the conversation, 1-800-313-9443. But right now we have Mark from Georgia on the line. Mark, are you there? Oh, I know. Ever since I decided to become my own imaginary best friend, I realized that I'm really just a figment of my own imagination. So I'm not really sure anything exists. That's pretty deep. That sounds like uh, Bill Hicks to me. Well, you're going to find I have a bit of a bizarre sense of humor. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It turned out being a quintilogy, and somewhere in there, uh, it is written of Zathog, people, Brock's. The job of the president is not to yield power, but to draw attention away from it. 
Uh, that uh, is a brilliant quote. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Perfect, absolute perfect quote. Read it again. Read it again. Uh, well, I didn't read it. I just remember I was re- I was reading the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. This is not in the first book. It's in there somewhere. But he's but it, it is written of Zaphod. The job of the president is not to yield power. It is to draw attention away from it. Like reading my pet goat while athlete nicknamed Cheney orders NORAD to sit on their hands. And the thing I point out to people who are having a hard time getting it, not only did the, you know, it's framed it obvious. I'm not going to ask what the composition capabilities or locations of the surface-to-air missile batteries that do, really? There are surface-to-air missile batteries around the Pentagon? Yeah, they're concealed. They're camouflaged. Of course there are. No, that's a conspiracy that, theory. They wouldn't have tried oh, to protect the, the biggest office building in the world, housing the heart of the, uh, the U.S. Exactly, Department of Defense. But, uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, they didn't even turn on the search radars to engage it, whatever it was that was coming in. But the damning indictment is that I point out to people this fully verified. Is it, let's see, is it okay to say uh, refer to Cliff Kincaid with news with views uh, as a douchebag? Because I pointed out to him. What I'm telling you is easily verified. The day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld announced $2.3 trillion missing. Now, the next day, not only were the records destroyed, they didn't even sound the air raid siren. The records, the people investigating those records, because, yeah, they destroyed the records, but there were people survived. Yeah, I saw this document said this. Oh, my God, we can't have that out. Uh, so they, you know, basically... The uh, staff investigating those records were murdered by the criminal elements within our own government that stole those funds. And like I try to explain to people, uh, the, the conventional meaning of the word terrorist is where governments apply terrorism to their own people, like Hitler's death camps and Stalin's gulag. Uh, so, you know, it's like right here in this country, we have to use the... Um, Trained enemy foreign, just like James Madison aptly said, if tyranny and oppression ever come to this land, it will come in the guise of fighting a foreign enemy. He was right. And uh, so they terrorism had to take that twist of some boogeyman in order for it to sell to the American people. And uh, right now, just recently, a friend of mine was charged with uh, an act of terroristic threat because he threw a chocolate shake out the window and it hit this woman's car who was tailgating him on the windshield, now he's all uh, concerned about how much it's going to cost a lawyer to get the charge dropped. Uh, that sounds absolutely insane, doesn't it? It's, that, is, that is beyond insane. Terroristic threats because of what, chocolate milk, did you say? I mean, just well, ridiculous. Uh, it was a, a frosty from, from, from Wendy's is like a thick chocolate shake. Uh, she was tailgating him. He was basically off the record. You wouldn't know him, so what difference is he going to make in terms of it actually getting anywhere, but basically he was trying, she was tailgating him, he threw the window, the shake out the window, trying to say, hey, will you back off? It was a whole long, stupid situation. But uh, anyway, like I say, he wound up having to get bailed out to the tune of hundreds of dollars, and, you know, he's just a contractor who hasn't had any regular work because of the state of the economy. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. it's just so much going on. 
It's well, it's ridiculous, but it is all just part of the unfolding agenda. And I've got another uh, thing along those lines. Uh, apparently, USA Today is now reporting hotel guests recruited with Homeland Security TV spots. So they want us to get us all into this uh, James Bond mentality where we're all, you know, spies for Department of Homeland Security snitching on each other and, and looking for terrorists under every bed and every, you know, every uh, place where they could be hiding. Exactly. So, so uh, let me just thank you again for that that brilliant quote. Oh, I, I, I got one parting joke, if you don't mind. Do it. Do uh, it. There was you know, Barack Obama was recently at a state dinner, and people saw him masticating at that state dinner. Uh, uh, people tend to masticate when they chew their food. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Chewing their food, exactly. Chewing. It's another word for chewing, but when you say it that way, it sounds dirty. I, I have no idea what you're referring to. I, my innocent ears wouldn't understand. The word masticate means to chew. Yes, absolutely. But if you say it that way, it makes it sound like, oh, my God, he's doing what? <laughs> exactly. Well, your epidermis is showing. So on that note, we're going to have to drop you there. But thank you so much for calling in and call in again some other time. Um, but it seems that we've got Eric Shine on the line. So, Eric, uh, are you there? I am, Jay. All right. Well, it's good to have you on. I'm uh, sorry. I apologize. Uh, no problem. Um, I... <laughs> I don't know what to say other than I'm sorry. Well, it's fine. It's uh, it happens to the best of us. And, uh, uh, no, I, I mean, it, in the position I'm in right now, I'm running around. You know, I don't want to say with my head cut off, but I'm probably not far from it. Um, I don't doubt it. So, so let's get the update. Um, what's what's the latest on your case? Well, uh, I'm before the Ninth Circuit now, uh, U.S. you know Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit, and. I'm back where I started, uh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, um, where Alex Kaczynski, the guy who basically sent me back to the executive branch, is now in charge of the Ninth Circuit. He was a circuit appellate uh, judge who took my appeals off calendar. They were not before him. And he sent me back to the executive branch for these Article 32 military tribunals or Article 1 congressional courts, whatever they are, because they've been claimed everything under the sun and they're acting as if they're, you know, part of the federal judiciary, which they're not. Um, I'm now finally back before the Ninth Circuit. The brief was due December 5th uh, this year, and the administrative law judge paralegal acting as general counsel for the NTSB, wrote a letter to the Ninth Circuit saying that they needed more time to provide the record for the appeal. So they gave them till I guess now the brief is due February 28th, which, you know, helps me as far as affording me more time. But how a paralegal who's acting as general counsel for the NTSB is able to write a letter, not a motion, one that I didn't have notice of, and get the Ninth Circuit to put out an order and not the circuit court three-judge panel, but the clerk of the court, who I guess Kathy Catterson was the chief or head, you know, clerk of the court for the Ninth Circuit. I'm not sure if she is gone, removed, moved on. Uh, another woman, uh, I think her name is Dwyer, I think it was Molly Dwyer, she is the one who issued the order. It's not, it basically was done administratively. So they gave the NTSB, who's a party in interest, it's the United States of America, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, 
Department of Transportation, National Transportation Safety Board, and the Coast Guard all against me. And do I feel it's uh, it's insane? But we, you know, we're talking inside baseball, and uh, the Corbett Report audience probably knows your story by now. But uh, we're on uh, Corbett Report Radio now, so there's probably a lot of people tuning in who have no idea who you are. So perhaps we can introduce who you are a little bit and talk about your. Well, we would have done that about 50 minutes ago if I yeah yeah. Well, we're bumping up against the break now. We've got a couple minutes, but uh, we better start introducing you. I really apologize. Um, I was looking forward to. coming on but uh in the position i'm in right now i'm uh uh my time is not my own we'll put it that way uh i'm you know like even now i'll go home i'm, I'm sitting in the truck uh speaking to you but um my name is eric shine lieutenant eric shine i also have a program on um rbn republic broadcasting network called in the zone uh i've been on there trying to warn and inform and tell people about what's going on and we got literally a bunch of Royalists or Nazis or Nazis working with a bunch of Royalists, uh, you know, whatever. These people are insane. They want to take down the American Republic, if not um, take over control of the world and set up some kind of new, you know, whatever, new world order. That's, uh, that's where it's heading, unfortunately, but we're right up against the break, so let's just take a, a short break, and we'll be back for the last few minutes to wrap up with uh, Lieutenant Eric Schein here on Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. Thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, broadcasting to you tonight uh, all the way from western Japan. And uh, we've just managed to connect with Lieutenant Eric Schein, our special guest for this evening. So uh, he's been good enough to say that he'll come on next week. So if uh, if you're listening tonight, tune in again next Tuesday. Make sure to be here next Tuesday night. So that we get a full hour with uh, with Lieutenant Eric Shine and his extremely important case, um, uh, Eric. A lot of things going through my mind right now. But um, one thing that strikes me is that at least you are before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and you're actually in a real court yeah. now, not these kangaroo military courts. Not really, though, because I should be in federal district court, where you have jury trial and all sorts of other things. Whereas, and, and see, things have changed dramatically, and I don't even know if the the Ninth Circuit um, understands this, but the Ninth Circuit has original subject matter jurisdiction to hear original complaints, almost as if they were a federal district court, and to even carry on a, a trial or appoint like a special master and get into this kind of stuff. But what they've done is they've set it up to short circuit because normally uh, before the NTSB was created and a lot of this other stuff, uh, we could get into federal district court and sue the Coast Guard and get our day in court and explain what's going on. Now, rather than getting into federal district court, then going to pellet and having a chance to have like a jury trial, present evidence, have rules of, you know, so, uh, rules of civil procedure apply, rules of uh, federal, you know, evidence apply, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now it's before the circuit appellate court and it's very narrow in scope and what they're going to review. I mean, they falsified medical records, stole medical records, took them without a warrant. A branch of military that I'm not in took my personnel file and medical records, and because there was nothing there, they went ahead and falsified them. They had a, a Coast Guard 
academy graduate who was an engineer on one of the ships that I was on testify against me. They had a Coast Guard medical officer in uniform testify against me and say that because of the way I defended myself in this, you know, kangaroo court military tribunal against me as an alleged civilian, that I was somehow medically, mentally incompetent. And they used JAG counsel, a JAG attorney, against me as an alleged civilian. And I say alleged because I'm a naval officer. I was a naval officer when they brought the charges against me. I'm a graduate of a military academy. My position as an officer in the United States Merchant Marine is coupled and inseparable with my naval commission. Right, um, but the crux of the matter is that they're trying you in this military court, and you're a allegedly a civilian. Right, exactly. That's I'm the point. I'm not, and see, it goes to what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. But but uh, that indicates the martial law aspect of it. Well, uh, it, you know, just so much to go through, so many of the, the things that they've done. But as I say, well, there are probably new people listening right now who might not have heard you before. So so uh, to get prepared for next Tuesday's conversation, why don't you direct them to, to some of your websites or some videos or articles that well, uh, you think people should uh, to get Google familiar with the case? Well, just Google my name, Eric Shine or Lieutenant Eric Shine and Merchant Marine, and uh, or go to www.crossingtherubicon.org or www.marshallaw, M-A-R-T-I-A-L-L-A-W-911.com. Uh, you can Google my name. There's all kinds of stuff out there, some of it trashing me and more. But the long yeah, and the short right. of it, one, one of the things that I've blown the whistle on that didn't start all of this was that the Coast Guard is now saying it's a branch of military in Homeland Security that can yep. administer civilian affairs. That's the crux of it right there. We're going to have to leave it there. We're fresh out of time, but Eric, thanks for coming on, and we're going to talk to you again next Tuesday night, so I hope people will check you out, or you can go to CorbettReport.com and just type Eric Shine into the search bar, and you can drop all the hours and hours and hours of conversations we've had in the past, but let's leave it there for now. You are listening to Corbett Report Radio. Join us again tomorrow night for another edition right here on Republic Broadcasting. Welcome to RBN, James. Thank you. Peace.